The success of Edwin Lamb Land's camera centered around its ability to produce a picture immediately. There is something of the Polaroid quality in all people. We spend so much of our lives waiting, we grow impatient, and we don't like it. We like to have things now. That's why when people leave our services of worship, if they'd like a tape of the service, they can get them on their way out. We've learned that people just don't like to wait. It's rather like that sign I saw in a shop which read, if I had wanted it tomorrow, I would have ordered it then. We don't want things tomorrow. We want things now. Not only the past generation, but the present is the now generation. We admire people who can deliver, and we admire people who can deliver quickly. Paul, in this amazing passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 29, tells us in unforgettable terms that this Jesus Christ, whom we worship as Lord, can and does deliver. He begins with the breathtaking claim that he is the firstborn of all creation. That is to say, he laid the foundations of the world. By him all things were made. Not only did he make them, but they were made for him. And in him all things hold together. He is the glue that causes the world to work and causes the world to hold together. He is the very image of God himself. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In this passage, Jesus is talking about the total adequacy of Christ. Christ is all in all. As a part of his sweeping claim, Paul says, through his atoning death on the cross, he has made reconciliation available to all of those who were estranged from God. Moreover, we do not have to wait for that reconciliation. That mercy is available instantly. That is why we have as a part of our story the story of the laborers in the vineyard, some of whom were in that vineyard all day long bearing the burden of the sun during the long hot day. But others came at the eleventh hour just before quitting time, and all were amazed and some were offended that they each received the same pay. Mercy available now, no matter the time. Here again we have that man on the cross beside him who repents of his sin and Jesus says in ringing tones of declaration, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will share with me the same paradise reserved for those persons who have walked with me across the months and days and years of their lives. It's available to you even as you come at this eleventh hour. He is able to deliver and he is able to deliver now. This is extremely important. 
the poet was right when he said, between the stirrup and the ground, I mercy sought and mercy found. Grace is available now, and we all admire and respect a God who can deliver so instantaneously. Still, this Apostle Paul has inserted a proviso. Somehow we've known all the while that it was there. Because he says, sure, he can do these things. More than that, he can make you holy. He can present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before God. And then without so much as a semicolon, and certainly without a period, he goes on to say, provided, provided you continue stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now, because Paul has inserted that singular but unavoidable provision, we have to take a new look at the whole meaning of surrender. For many people, surrender can be traced to that monumental day when we accept Jesus, accepted Christ as our personal Savior, the day we joined the church, perhaps, or a day long after when we discovered what being a Christian was all about if we didn't know it earlier. And we've traced surrender to that significant moment when we first committed ourselves to Christ. But now as we study the scripture more carefully, we begin to see that surrender is not the act of a moment, but the work of a lifetime. Nothing is ever won forever. We are those, therefore, who are saved and are being saved. We need to look at Mark chapter 8 a little bit more carefully. This, too, is a part of our story, and we need to remember it. It's about Jesus on the day they brought him a blind man. It was the blind man from Bethsaida. The story has it that Jesus led the man out of the village. And one wonders why this private miracle. To be blind in those days was to be branded as a sinner because one suffered sicknesses because of one's sins. And so this man had been a spectacle all of his life. And Jesus, ever sensitive, ever kind, leads that man away from the crowd. And then stooping, he takes some dust of the ground and his own spittle, and he makes a poultice, puts it on the man's eyes, lays his hands on him and prays. Then he asks the man, can you see? And the man said, Lord, I, I, can, I can see a little. I can see men. They're like trees walking. And so Jesus put his hands on him again and prayed once more. And this time the man regained his sight and saw clearly. That's also a part of our tradition that says sometimes one touch is not enough. Sometimes we need to be touched again and again and again. I have found it so in my own experience. Provided. Provided. That's extremely important. And we discovered that our spiritual experience was not an end in itself the day we became a Christian. Rather, it was but the beginning of our pilgrimage that we also have a part to play in going on to become, as Paul says, mature, all that our Christ wants us to be. The apostles said, add to your faith virtue. 
He also said, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And as he goes on to tell us how he, we must tend to our salvation, our faith experience, the Apostle Paul shares his nightmare with us that he says, after preaching to others, I myself might become a castaway. He knew that God initiates that faith experience as a gift, but he also knows that it takes striving and laboring to make that faith all God wants it to be. Read the story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John. Lazarus, you remember, was a special friend of Jesus, as were his sisters. When Lazarus became ill, Mary and Martha sent word to the Lord. He didn't go immediately. And finally, when he arrived some four days later, Lazarus long since dead and buried, those sisters chided him somewhat, saying, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. You remember Jesus was so moved that he wept, and he asked them to lead him to the place where he was buried, which in this instance was a deep cave over which a stone had been placed. Jesus said, roll the stone away. They were reluctant to do that. The man had been dead four days. But Jesus insisted they roll the stone away. Now one has to ask, here is the Son of God, who is about to, to bring this man to life again. Here is the Son of God about to work a miracle beside which all other miracles pale into insignificance. Why, why couldn't he, like, like that woman on Bewitched, just wiggle his nose a little bit and move that stone? Why, why couldn't he just wave his hand and say, get out of the way, stone? Why would he turn to those people and ask them to bend their backs and roll that rock away? You can read it throughout Scripture. We cannot do the things that God can do, like bring people back from the dead. But our God will not do the things we can do. There is a part to be played in this matter of the formation of faith. And Paul says, I labor, I toil, I strive to see that every person is mature in Christ. None can sit on his or her hands. I like that story about the corporal in the war between the states. He had been on the front far too long. It was obvious to his captain that the man was exhausted. And so he said to him one day, get out of the thick of the battle. I want you to retire to the rear. Go to the rear and get some rest. And so the man headed out to the rear, only to, to find himself in the middle of a fight that uh, almost took his life. Thinking he had gone in the wrong direction, he tried another direction, and he also ran into a skirmish that was almost too much for him. Finally, he dragged himself back to the captain and says, Captain, there ain't any rear in this battle. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. If you ever had the idea that somehow you come to Christ and then sit on your hands, then forget it. There isn't any rear in this campaign. You are to be involved in the formation of faith. Paul used that athletic, muscular word. He was striving. 
to present every person mature. Striving is too strong a word for some. Some haven't even begun. I thought of that when I heard about that caption the other day in Fortune magazine. It was a caption over the cartoon of a baby that was yawning. And, and the caption read, only X number of thousands of days before retirement. And some people are like that. They, they aren't there because they haven't really begun. They haven't really gotten started in the pilgrimage faith. Somehow they, they came and, and like a knot on the log just feel that they can sit there and, and someday miraculously by a degree of magic can, can become a person of, of faith. Others make a good beginning but then decide the price is too great and they don't want to pay it. And so they spend their lives in the kindergarten of faith. The other day I had an opportunity to be with some young ministers uh, from my previous churches. One of those had been our babysitter. And not only had he been our babysitter, but he was always over at our house. And the Lord got him by calling him to preach. And now he's got his own church. But as we were talking, I remember so vividly when Holland got his driver's license. Holland came over to our house and, and wanted to drive our car. Well, I mean, he was our sitter and things like that. And I, I was reluctant because I knew his mother's car had an automatic transmission and, and the little car we had had a, had a standard transmission, a manual transmission, and I asked Holland, I said, Holland, are you sure you can drive this car? He said, oh, of course, I, I have my, I passed my test, I can drive it, just give me the key. And uh, reluctantly, I gave him the key, and he was gone and gone and gone, and after a while, a car came back that was not ours, and out of it stepped Holland. And when I asked him what had happened, he said he had had car trouble. The thing had just shut off on him. He said it got louder and louder, and finally it got so hot I could smell it, and it just shut down. And I went out to investigate and discovered that he had started out in good style in first gear and had just left it there. <laughs> he had floorboarded that little car in first gear and had run it wide open until the engine had overheated and it had shut down on him. Well, I've known people like that. People who, who spend their lives in first gear, who, who, who never discover a second or a third, let alone an overdrive, who just keep on churning in first gear and they're going nowhere very fast. To be a Christian is to be earnest about your faith. To be a Christian is to work at your faith. Proverbs says, He who is slothful about his work is brother to him who wasteth much. And we know it's true. If anything is important to us, we'll work at it. I know people so dedicated to golf even in their retirement years, they go to sleep every night listening to tapes about how to play golf better. 
They get up in the morning and go to the breakfast table with golf magazines to read about the techniques. And then they generally aren't there for lunch because, to put it in one of my friend's words, I only play golf on days that end in Y. <laughs> to care about anything is to work at it. I had a violinist once who played in a church I served. The man was 70 years of age at the time. One could listen to his music and know that a lifetime was involved in it. I asked this prominent musician, how much do you practice? He said, well, I'm tapering off a little bit now. I only practice between 8 and 12 hours a day. Where does faith come in? And all of these matters to which we give ourselves. Are we working at our faith in our families? Today is the festival of the Christian home. Are we working at the faith of our children? McLaren told that old story about the little boy who said to his papa one day, Papa, I'm a Christian, but I haven't worked at it much lately. One wonders why that child hasn't worked at it. Is it because parents aren't being intentional in helping children work at it? I think about how careful we are concerning the intake of our children, what they eat. I, I think about many people are by their children all the time, like we were about that first baby. You remember when that pacifier would hit the floor? We'd, we'd boil the water on the stove. Took a long time in those days and, and sterilize that sucker. And then by the third baby, you just wipe it on your britches leg and hand it to him. Well, a, a lot of people stay uh, about their children in, in terms of their intake, just like that first baby. I mean, if children come to the table with unwashed hands, uh, their parents throw those up in horror. You never come to this table until you've washed your hands. You don't want to get any germs. And we worry about filling our children's mouths with germs. And then they sit indiscriminately before the television for hours, filling their minds and hearts with unwashed garbage, which is infinitely, listen, which is infinitely more dangerous than the germs that may have been on their hands. Not long ago, a mother was interviewed who's, who had taken a nine-year-old to a show that had very questionable material in it. Not questionable to the preacher, to secular critics. They asked this mother about taking that nine-year-old. And they said, Why, how do you feel about it, having brought her to this show? And she said, I only hope that she doesn't understand some of those words. Well, they do understand. And they understand all too well. They understand that we can get them to brownies and baseball, but we can't get them to Bible study. They can understand that we can get them to ballet and to everything under the sun. But when the church sets up a spiritual retreat in the mountains for the pastor to teach them for a week out of the year, many of us can't arrange their schedules to get them there. 
They understand that we can get them to all kinds of exciting things, but it's tough to rendezvous for family prayers or devotional time around the table. They understand these things. They understand that we had never missed that golf date, we had never missed that favorite show on television, but for the, for the most part, our lives are too busy to attend to the spiritual. Now, how important is the continuance of Christianity at your house? I have a Cruden's Concordance in my study. I've mentioned it before. It's one of my prized possessions. It was printed in 1851. It's the best commentary I've ever seen. The, the backs are off of it now. I just kind of put it in there like between two bricks and keep it and ha handle it ever so carefully because the pages are very brittle now. But I prize it because it, it belonged to one of, one of Jean's family, maybe a great-grandfather. I prize it also because as I was going through its pages one day, I found a sheet of notebook paper, just plain paper, on which he was roughing out his Sunday school lesson, that staunch Presbyterian. He was, he was outlining his Sunday school lesson, and right in the middle of his lesson, the preparation left off. I don't know if he got sick that day, if he died that day. I don't know, but he stopped only when he had to stop, and that lesson was dated 1875. Now, how important is it that his great-great-great-grandchildren be Christian? I think if we could call him here and ask him, I think he would say it is terribly important. It is more important than anything else you can do for your children is to introduce them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When Paul... When Paul thought about Timothy, he didn't just think about him. He thought about that grandmother, Lois, who had a wonderful faith. And he thought about that mother, Eunice, who had a wonderful faith. And Timothy was the sum total. The faith that was in him had first been in his mother and then had been in his grandmother. And many of us are here today because that faith was lodged securely in the lives of those who were precious to us and who used that faith to shape and mold our lives. How important is it in your home? The good news is that before we begin to talk about all the work you have to do, the Bible says you must first receive. Now that's a lot easier, isn't it? Or is it? Paul says, I strive with all of the energy which he mightily inspires within me. In other words, the energy I bring to this is an energy that has been given to me. We work according to his working within us. Now that's where Christianity is misunderstood. You need to get this clear. A lot of people shun Christianity because of all the duties incumbent upon it. When someone joins our church, we say to them right up front, we expect you to pray, we expect you to come, we expect you to give, we expect you to serve. We say it the moment they join the church. The only reason we don't say it sooner is because we can't get to them sooner. Because we assume that there is a spirit working within them. And we work because he is working within us. If you take that away, Christianity is like slavery. No wonder people shun it. They say, all that stuff they expect me to do, 
The natural person uh, draws back from that. The natural person is turned off by all of that. But when His Spirit is mightily at work within us, then we have all of that energy, we have all of that drive, we have all of that dedication to do the duty that He calls us to do. We are strong only when we are strong in the Lord. We've identified with Christ in His death. We say we're saved by faith. Jesus died for me. But for goodness sake, let's identify with Christ in His life. He also rose from the dead, and He lives to save you and to help you now. So let us then identify with Him in His death and in His life, and to know that our hope for glory is precisely, as Paul has said, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So the apostle declares, I strive, I toil, how? Because of the mighty power which is at work within me. Be strong then. Go on from strength to strength in the strength which he alone supplies. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, you have not left us alone. You have come to us in the person of the risen Christ. You never call us to a task without giving us the strength and the ability to do it. Give us grace then to receive. And after we've received, let someone talk to us about work. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I hope if you've received in this hour and you want to dedicate yourself to Christian discipleship, I hope you'll come as we stand to sing our closing hymn. It's the first, second, and last stanzas. And will you come as we stand?